The sermon text for this evening's message is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 52 through 71. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go his way as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, you know that I don't deserve to be here, and none of us listening deserves another chance to hear the word of God. What an amazing privilege, what a gift to have another few minutes to breathe and to listen to the word of God, to read, to hear, to meditate, to appropriate, to apply. What a gift. I find this to be a difficult text, and I ask for a special spiritual control of my mind and my lips and my attitude so that the demeanor of Jesus here is appropriately brought into this 21st century. So be on us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sixth chapter of John, uh, which we will almost finish in this sermon, <clears throat> but not quite. There's one more, one more sort of 
gathering sermon next week before Christmas that I think is very suitable for that situation. So we're almost finished. This sixth chapter of John's Gospel begins with 5,000 men following Jesus after they were given food from the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and a few fish. And the chapter ends with 11. And in the meantime, they all forsook him. Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary, says, Chapter 6 ends on a note of failure. From one standpoint, that's true. The resistance to Jesus in this chapter gets stronger and stronger and stronger until almost everyone abandons him. So it looks like the resistance to Jesus is winning and it looks like a failure. So I asked then, what's the point of the chapter? And I found that to be a very difficult question to answer. But I'll give you my answer and we'll spend the rest of our time trying to see if this is so. Here's my answer to the the main overarching lesson that John wants us to get from his record of Jesus' teachings in the 71 verses of chapter 6. Whenever it appears that resistance to Jesus is winning in this world, the people of God need a very robust and very clear vision of God's sovereignty over all things, especially over resistance to Jesus. I think that's the point of this chapter. Let me bring it down to your situation a little closer so that you can feel how generalized and utterly relevant this is to your life. Say it again another way. Whenever it appears in your life that Jesus is not winning, whenever it seems as though he's not triumphing over your enemies, personal or physical or situational, just at that point, at that time, you need a robust, clear vision of God's sovereignty over you and the horrors of your life. That's what I think this chapter is about. Now, when I began this seven messages ago, this chapter, this is message number seven on on chapter six, I had no idea that's what I would say is the main point of this chapter. That was not on my agenda to say as the primary overarching lesson John wants us to take away from the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But I have spent a long time, a hard time, especially wrestling with verses 52 to 71. And I cannot escape this point. 
So <clears throat> I find this doesn't feel to me like an upbeat sermon. God's sovereignty over resistance to Jesus. It's, this chapter feels really heavy to me. It feels like Jesus is pushing the limits of acceptability in the way he talks and whittling the crowd down from 5,000 to 11. So I thought, well, I, I can pick really juicy parts of this chapter and preach upbeat sermons. They're all over the place. I'll do some of that next week. But should we miss the forest for all the juicy fruit trees that there are in it? Should we not say what the main overarching thrust is? No. No, we should say it. And I will try. You heard me pray. I will try to say it in a demeanor that I hope is not out of sync with Jesus. In fact, I'm not altogether sure that I should try to get into Jesus' skin here because he's Jesus and I'm sinner John and, and, and he was preaching mainly to Jews and I'm not and he was first century and the temperament of the people was probably one thing and I'm preaching to pretty fragile 21st century people who get hurt a lot more easily, I think, than first century people, and um, I really mean that. I think, I think our forebears were way tougher than we were emotionally and in most every other way. We're all pretty, pretty flimsy emotionally, myself included. But I'm going to try. Um, and here's my hope. Verse 63, Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life Verse 68, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So I believe with all my heart, I couldn't do what I do for a living if I didn't believe this. I believe with all my heart that if I regularly, week in and week out, say the hard and the easy things that Jesus says, you will have life over time. In any given sermon, you may feel that was hard. Just like they said, this is a hard thing, and they walked away. Some of you will feel, this is hard, and you'll walk away. I watch it happen. I was praying downstairs, I don't want the ministry of Isaiah. Go, make the heart of this people fat. I don't want that ministry. I don't like the idea that the word of God is the aroma of death to death and the aroma of life to life. I just want life. I want people saved. I want people happy in Jesus. I want marriages reconciled. I want children to come home. I just want all good things to result. I don't like it when people leave and when they find the message oppressive or hard. So I, I'm, I'm struggling. Lord, should I even... Should I even try to follow the train of thought which feels so negative in this chapter from 5,000 to 11? Good night. But my hope is 
that if, if week in and week out, I take it as it comes, try to be faithful to everything he says, that in the big picture, you'll be a healthier people. That's just my confidence. That in the big picture, this will be a healthier people if there's both the hard things and the tender things and we can grow up together. So that's my assumption as I proceed. Now, here's one of the huge perplexing things to me. I'll just walk you with me in my how I got to where I'm going here. Um, I am so perplexed in this chapter as to the prominence of Judas. This is chapter 6. He hasn't done anything yet. He's not even on the scene. He hasn't said anything. He hasn't done anything in this chapter. Why do you bring up Judas twice? Why is he such a big deal here? What's going on with Judas? We can save Judas. I don't need Judas here. Do I? Or do I? If I do, why do I? It's such bad news. I mean, Judas is all bad news. It's just horrible what Judas did. So... What's up with bringing up Judas? Verse 64, John brings up Judas. Jesus brings him up again in verse 70. Why? And my answer to that is because bringing up Judas the way they bring up Judas is designed to make the main point of this chapter. It serves the big overarching point that when it looks like resistance to Jesus is triumphing in your family or your heart or your neighborhood or your body, you need a big, clear, robust vision of the sovereignty of God over resistance. And he was it, personified. Let's consider this. Chapter 6, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. This is what makes it feel so negative again and again and again. You're bumping into unbelief in this chapter. For Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So now there's the first time Judas gets brought up. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father, unless it is granted to him by the Father. In other words, Judas doesn't come because it's not granted him to come. Judas is rebellious and greedy and selfish and not believing, and God leaves him there forever. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So Judas is brought up in order to display the truth of 644 and 665. Nobody comes unless the Father draws. Exhibit A, Judas. Then consider 66 to 71, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, now get this, disciples, not taggers along, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Do you feel like doing that? Maybe right now? That was a final defection in this text. Disciples were leaving him in droves. 
from 5,000 to 11, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? That's all he's got left, it looks like to me. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him, and that's the end of the chapter, period, story over. This boggles my mind. Why did you do that? Why did you end there? Just, it's over. Not 12, 11. Out of 5,000. End of story. Failure. Or is it? What would you do? What, what, what would, what's, what's the point in this flow, this thought, this strange development of, of miraculous feeding and, and tending them like a sh- shepherd? Follow across the river, preach in the synagogue, and they begin to peel away and grumble and, and dispute among themselves and... And then there's 12, and, and to make things really clear, he says, no, they're not 12, because there's a devil among you. And that's the end of the story. Sins <laughs> have the spirit of upbeat, you know, come on, it's Christmas. Did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? And don't forget when he says that, that in verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Why did Jesus bring Judas into the picture again in verse 70 and 71? I think I know why. I think I know why. The unbelief in this chapter is pervasive. It intensifies as you go along. Thousands of people following. And in the end, 11, verse 66, most of his disciples abandon him. In the end, you have a tiny little remnant, not 12, but 11, and a fake. And the most natural question, wouldn't it be the most natural question starting with such triumphant, miraculous following down to 11, including now one to make it 12 who's a devil, wouldn't you say, the devil's winning? I mean, that's what it looks like. That's what I would feel. You take this chapter in it, the devil's winning. The slanderer, the accuser, the blinder of those who are to not believe. 
Get that from 2 Corinthians. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the devil's winning. That's what you would, I would think when I read this chapter and just follow it through. And I think this chapter is written to say, no! He is not winning. Jesus has him by the nose. He has hooked him, landed him, and put him smack dab in the middle of the twelve, and he will do exactly what God purposes for him to do. And that's why Jesus is drawing attention to Judas. You think that all of these departures are because I have lost control? That I can't do any better than this? In gathering a a band? Let me tell you something. I have 12, and I include a devil to show the devil's done. He'll do his work. He will commit his suicide at the cross. And then, when I'm lifted up, you'll know. Now, right here, the ways that people read the Bible divide. You can read verse 70 and see only problems for the rest of your life. Why would he choose a man who's going to betray him? Because he knew, he says he knew in verse 64 and 5. And if he knew that he was going to betray him, then he has to betray him or Jesus would be wrong. And if he has to betray him, he's not free. If he's not free, he's not responsible. Why is he called the son of destruction? And why call him a devil, Jesus? For goodness sakes doesn't help camaraderie among the twelve. They don't even know who it is. Can you, you can spend the rest of your life reading the Bible that way. I don't want you to. Oh, how I don't want you to. Or, that's one path people go down when they read verses like this. They go down that path. Problem, 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 grave. Or you can, you can read verse 70 and see a sanctuary of God's sovereignty. You can read verse 70 about Judas and see a sanctuary for your soul when all hell breaks loose in your life. You can. You can. Hundreds of you have. Hundreds of you have. You have found a sanctuary. You have found a rock in a sea of quicksand when all hell is breaking loose in your life. This I know. God reigns over resistance to him. 
God reigns over the Judases in my life. You can. I do think earnestly that this chapter is written with its steadying defeat down from 5,000 to 11 in order to show that there is a robust, clear vision of the sovereignty of God over resistance to Jesus in the Bible, in reality. I think that's the main point. There are other points in this chapter. Really delightful, juicy, glorious, sweet. In fact, we'll see some tonight, Lord willing, and even more next Sunday. But there are trees, and this is the forest. So to see it more clearly, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the magnificent offer in these verses 52 to 71. This is sweet, if you'll have it. Number two, the mounting resistance to it. And number three, the clearer and clearer and clearer statement of God's sovereignty over that resistance. Those are the three things. So let's do the offer first. Verse 53 states it negatively and verse 54 states it positively. 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, positively, verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. In other words, if you don't eat this flesh and drink this blood, you don't have eternal life. If you do eat this flesh and drink this blood, you do have eternal life. Now, verses 55 and 56 give two reasons for why that's so. For my flesh, verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. True, true, true. What does that mean? I think it means... Um, when you go home tonight and eat whatever you're going to eat, that's food. That's good. It's not true food in the way he's thinking it, because it gives this life. It, it keeps this thing going. This machine keeps going. And this is good life. It's just not the true life. It's not eternal life. So this, true food maintains true life. Ordinary food maintains ordinary life. And what we need is is spiritual life-giving whatever it is, namely flesh and blood here, to, to give eternal life, true life. So true food for true life. Verse 56 explains why eating this true food produces true life. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Sounds like chapter 15, doesn't it? The, the vine and the branch. Abiding in, getting sap, bearing fruit, flowing of life from vine to branch into fruit. It's the picture of the Christian life in chapter 15. And here it's eat, eat the bread, which is my flesh, and drink the blood. And, and life will be in you because 
I will be in you and you will be in me. This is union, right? This is some kind of strange, wonderful uh, union between Jesus and us and the explanation in this gospel of why sinners like us can have eternal life is because Jesus is in us and he is life. I am the life. So eat me, eat me. And then you got life and we live forever. I'm in you, you're in me, and that's life. Don't think of eternal life as some little thing out here. And Jesus is here and, and he kind of, you know, a laser or something. It's, it's rather, you come together and there's this thing called eating. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. What is that? But you eat and you drink and he goes into you and you go into him in some wonderful union. And because of that union, you live forever. Because he lives forever. What he is, you are. What he has, you get. Now, what does it mean to eat him? Drinking blood and eating flesh is about as offensive as Jesus could be. Not just because it sounds like cannibalism, but in a Jewish context, you don't even eat meat with the blood in it, let alone Drink the blood. It looks as though Jesus is offending intentionally. He's in a synagogue, verse 59. What in the world? And it works. They're gone. If you think you've got Jesus in your back pocket... Send me a mail. Send me a mail. Just tell me what it is. I don't have him in my back pocket. He's leaping out all the time. I can't get my hands. I can't control this man. <laughs> yeah, that's good news. What does it mean? I think the answer of what it means to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink the blood of Jesus is clear in a couple of ways. The answer is the same thing we saw in verse 65. I'm sorry, 35. 635. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So the implication is you come and eat and you're satisfied and you don't hunger anymore. And then he adds, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So you're coming to eat and you're coming to drink and your thirst is going away and your hunger is going away and you have deep, profound, settled satisfaction because you've come to him, meaning believed on him. So I said when we dealt with verse 35 that Coming to him to eat means believing on him for all that God is for us in Jesus. Let's see if that's confirmed in this context. Look at the parallel between verse 40 and 54. Kind of glance at both of those. Keep your eye on one and the eye on the other. Verse 40 and 54, I'll read 54 first. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Parallel verse 40. 
Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Eternal life in verse 54 corresponds to eternal life in verse 40. I will raise him up on the last day in verse 54 corresponds to I will raise him up on the last day in 40. And feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood corresponds to looks on the Son of Man and believes in him. Which is exactly the parallel we saw in verse 35. Coming to him to eat is parallel with believing on him. And here, eating and drinking his flesh and blood is parallel with seeing him and believing him. So St. Augustine made this little famous statement. Believe and you have eaten. And I think that's exactly what Jesus means. I don't know for sure fully why he pushes the limit of language acceptability in going all the way to what sounds like cannibalism. Why he went that far in such an offensive language. I leave that for you to think more about. But what's clear to me is he doesn't mean anything different than he was meaning in the earlier verses when he said, I'm the bread of life. Come and eat for satisfaction. That is believe on me. So believing is is receiving. It's being nourished by. It's taking into your life. It's being satisfied by. These are the things connoted by eat and drink, eat and drink. And one last observation about why he would use this language This is my best shot. He knows this is offensive. If it's going to be offensive, in other words, if resistance is mounting, which it is all through the chapter, then we may as well make sure that the resistance is for the right thing. And I think when he said in verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of, of the world is my flesh. That's a clear reference to a sacrificial offering of his life and his flesh. In other words, his death. I think Jesus in verse 51 puts all that language under the banner of, I'm going to give my flesh to die for you. That's the flesh you eat. Meaning, what you need as sinners rebelling against God is to take into your life not just me in general, but me crucified, me bloodshedding, me with my flesh torn. Because I'm going to do that for you. I'm taking your place. I'm bearing your punishment. I'm finishing your righteousness. That's what you need. Take me into your life, my flesh, my blood. Otherwise, your flesh and blood has got to be, has got to be taken. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I lay down my life for the sheep. And when I do, my body gets ripped and my blood gets poured out. And when you see that, that's your life. That's your life. Eat it, meaning believe it, receive it, love it, treasure it. Make it more valuable to you than anything you love to eat. Anything you love to drink, drink this in like you drink when you're thirsty. Eat this in like you eat when you're hungry. He's using these as figures, figures 
for how desperately needy we are for the crucified Christ. Desperately needy for somebody to bear our punishment, somebody to spill their blood so that we don't have to spill our blood, and somebody to have their flesh torn so that we don't have to suffer eternally. We've seen it before, chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. So the Son of Man gets lifted up like the snake on the pole. Look to him. Believe on him. And you have life. Now over here, he's saying it in more graphic, offensive language. My flesh is going to be torn. My blood's going to be poured out. Why? Because I'm giving. I'm giving it for the life of the world. Like you, those who are going to walk away in just a few minutes. So there's the offer. I said there was a magnificent offer in these verses 52 to 58. There it is. Whoever will eat, whoever will drink, will have eternal life. And I offer, Jesus is offering right now in this room, Jesus is offering still to you his crucified life. He's risen from the dead, so he's offering it from heaven through my mouth to you right now so that if your heart would just welcome him in and say, I desperately need a savior like that. I desperately need somebody to die my death and live my life because I'm blowing my life and I'm deserved to death. And if that's what this means, that's what I need above everything. So that offer still stands, and I pray that you will not walk away from it. However, now... We turn to the resistance. This is shorter. So second, there's an offer, and now there's mounting resistance. Verse 52, they were dis- verse 41, they were grumbling because of what he said. Verse 52, they are disputing and questioning. Verse 60, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 64, there's some of you who do not believe. Verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And verse 70, there's a devil in the 12. So the mounting unbelief and resistance, and it looks like the devil is winning. Or just leave the devil out. I'm using the word devil because Jesus used the word devil. There's a devil in the 12. Why would he even, why, why would he bring up Judas and why does he call him a devil? And I'm arguing to make sure that we know the devil's under control here. The devil is not winning here. But leave the devil out for a minute. It just looks like the decisive purposes of autonomous human beings are winning. It looks like unbelieving man is holding sway from what? 4,000, I didn't do this math, 800 and whatever, 5,000 minus 11. (laughs) It looks as though there are that many sovereign little humans who frustrate God. We can frustrate God. We can walk away from anybody we please. It 
It looks as though God calls people to faith in his son, and they say no and walk away and so frustrate God's purposes. It looks like they hold the key to their soul and they lock it from the inside and poor God can't get in. It looks as though man makes the decisive move and he moves away. And poor God had hoped for a better response. But man is autonomous, sovereign at this point. And God can't do anything about it. No, it's not like that. And I'll close where I ended. The overarching I mean, I'll close where I began. (laughs) I am going to close where I close. The overarching lesson of this chapter is, no, that is not the way it is. John makes it clearer and clearer and clearer that the resistance rises, and so does the clarity of, of the statements that God is in control of the resistance. Verse 44. Don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Your grumbling and your disputing are not decisive. My Father and his drawing are decisive. If you don't come, you haven't trumped God. You don't rule the world. God rules the world. Every moment, everywhere. Verse uh, 61 at the end. You take offense at this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. You think you can just make life happen or not? No. The spirit gives life. The father draws to the son. Verse 64. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. Your unbelief is no proof of your sovereignty. On the contrary, you will stay in your unbelief until the Father grants it to be otherwise. And at this point, people start to walk away. Because instead of feeling relief that they must make it happen... They just see problem after problem after problem instead of a sanctuary. And the fourth illustration of the explicitness of God's rule, verse 67 to 70. Jesus asked the 12, are you going to forsake me as well? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed 
and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, finally. Yes, somebody's believing. Now, how will Jesus respond to that? His response up till now with all the grumbling, all the disputing, all the walking away has been nobody can come anyway until the Father draws him. And so you're not frustrating God's designs. What will he say to this? We have believed. Jesus answered them, verse 70. And the I is very emphatic here. Did I myself not choose you? The twelve. That, that's why you're believing. In other words, he says to the, those who are walking away in their pride and their rebellion, thinking we have just frustrated the designs of this wacko Messiah pretender. And he says, no, you haven't. Because nobody can come to me unless my father draws him. So he pulls the plug on pretensions of autonomy. And he does exactly the same thing for Peter. Lest there be pretensions of faith, autonomy. We believe. Yes, we do. (laughs) And Jesus maybe can smell in the words that they say, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe Jesus can smell just a little bit of autonomy, pretension. And he says, I chose you. I chose you. It says the same thing over in chapter 15. You didn't choose me. I chose you. It says the same thing in chapter 13. I know whom I have chosen. So I can't escape what the main point of this chapter is. The main point of this chapter is whenever resistance to Jesus starts to mount and we feel in our culture, maybe, like, goodness, We're losing the grip. This used to be a Christian nation, blah, blah, blah. Oh, what will poor God do without America? Well, he'll go to China or South Korea or Nigeria. This is not a problem for God. When... Ever it looks in our family, in our life, in our church, in our nation, like resistance to Jesus is winning. We, at that very point, we Christians need a clear, robust vision of the sovereignty of God over the resistance to Jesus, which comes out at least four times in this chapter, and that's why Judas is put on display twice. Now, here's my closing plea. Because I love you. I don't want any of you to walk away and say, that's a hard saying, which is what they did. That's a hard saying. I'm gone. They can have their 11, but I'm out of here. 
I just plead with you, may the Lord grant you to be among those who find in Jesus' teaching not a stumbling stone, but a rock of refuge. You need to talk to each other. You need to talk to each other because some of you have found it so sweet. You have walked through horrific things in your family, in your health, in your life. And this has been what kept you sane. And others of you can only see problems. It doesn't feel like a rock under you. It doesn't feel like a covert in the mountainside as the, as the storm goes by. It feels like you're being thrown into the storm. That's what it feels to some of you right now in this room. And I'm just going to pray for you in a minute that God would put you among the number who see in the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Jesus over Judas and over you and over all the horrific things you're going to deal with in your life, a sanctuary for your soul. So that when all around your soul gives way, he then will be your hope and stay. So that When sorrows like sea billows roll, you will say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's my prayer. That's my hope. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to drive anyone away. Let's pray. Father, if I have missed it at all, any piece of it, any uh, emphasis in it that needs to be made. Let, let your people see it. Not see me, but see it. And if we're close to what this chapter is trying to do, would you confirm it profoundly? This is a spiritual thing, Lord. This is not an intellectual game. I can't persuade people at the mental level and have their hearts be in rebellion. It won't work. I plead with you that in this room now there would be a sense of yes, yes, it can be a sanctuary. Yes, it can be a rock. I will let my problems be on the periphery and work on them periodically, but I've got to stand here. I've got to stand here. So God, get us ready for the storms that are coming. Individually, on marriages, in families, in this church, in our nation, and in the world, many storms will break. Put us on a rock, we pray. This one, in Jesus' name, amen.